Podcast Starts. Hello everyone and welcome back to And Now the Podcast Starts, a show which talks about horror, cinema and anything related that takes the interest of my wonderful co-hosts or myself. I'm T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan, in Greater Manchester, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by... Kirsty Warrow in Shropshire. And for the first time joining us live... It's Stella Gaynor in Manchester. Wonderful. Today's episode is the first in what will become a recurrent strand in our series, that's of Missed Classics, those apparently great landmark horror shows or films that one or more of the hosts have somehow never watched before. And our first focus in this strand is going to be Dario Argento's Suspiria from 1977, although we'll also be touching on Luca Guadagnino's remake from 2018. Stella, to welcome you to a live recording of the, of the show... I'd like you to talk a little just about yourself and and your background because obviously Kirsty and I have now been doing two episodes of this live, but this is the first time you've appeared live on the show, although you have been heard in kind of recordings that we'd previously made. Um, I've known you for 20 years or thereabouts, or maybe a little more, um, since we were both media students at Sixth Form College together. Um, but since then, you've gone on to great things. Uh, have I? Yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. Um, yeah, I met Dan. We were at Sixth Form College, so we were 16, 17, which is more than 20 years ago. Um, How dare you? Sorry. It's true, though. Um, <laughs> we, Yeah, I've been into horror and all things dark and macabre for as long as I can remember. So I was thinking about this earlier. Um, and even when I was a kid, everything was always... Not miserable, but, you know, everything contained witches and, and horror-based themes. And that's just continued all through my life. And I've managed to put myself in a position where I can talk about horror and teach people about horror as my career. Um, I did do a bit of practical stuff, did some makeup for a few years, um, then decided to get a proper job. And then I ended up getting a PhD scholarship where I wrote about American TV horror. And now I'm a lecturer. And that's what I do. It's, it's not bad, is it, for someone who just liked watching carry when they were too young <laughs> done all right and i think more generally um i'm into i re- recently got into true crime in quite a big way that wasn't really a thing for me before the last year though i've really got into true crime and serial killers i'm currently writing about serial killers in my new book chapter um and yeah i think out of everybody on this podcast i'm going to be the one that swears sorry <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> Well, warning. Um, warning, yeah. <laughs> just, just try and keep it to a minimum. Hopefully, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll cut it out. Um, but that, that's fair enough. Now, oh, still, that's great. At the end of the day, you are living the dream. Yes. And um, <laughs> I get to be an actual doctor of horror. Wow, that is amazing. Which is ridiculous. <laughs> it's wonderful, uh, Kirsty. I think that. You are living the dream as well, it must be said. I am, although um, I think Stella's dream is my dream, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> oh, well, that's nice. Well, um, my dream is to sit here on the end of a microphone talking to you guys on a podcast, I think. So So for this hour, I'm living the dream as well. Um, oh. So that's, that's marvellous. I think for just to allow the um, listeners to get to know us a little... Um, it would be nice if we each wheeled out some horror favourites. Um, obviously, if people have been listening to this, this podcast since the beginning, they'll have got an idea 
from myself and Kirsty about some of the things we like, but I don't think we've ever actually sat down and said what what are our, you know, number one things. So um, it would be good to go over that now, I think. Um, I'll start um, by talking about my favourite horror film. So um, my favourite film of all time could be considered a horror film. It's Aliens. Um, but... Equally, some people would argue that it's not a horror film, so I'll go for my favourite horror film, which is um, definitely The Wicker Man. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about this, um, Kirsty, because I remember us having some discussions about yeah. it back at uni. Um, and uh, we can follow up on that. By the way, I do mean the 1973 version of The Wicker Man with Edward <laughs> yeah. Woodward, not the remake with Nicolas not Cage. Nicolas Cage. Oh, no. <laughs> um, that's probably the the horror film I've watched more than any other. I, um, another of my favourite films is With Nell and I, and I remember reading um, when I was a student, or maybe just before, that that was like a traditional student film and that there was one guy who said that was the movie I watched every week while I was at uni. And first I thought, well, why would you do that? Um, but then I, I thought, oh no, I should have a film that I watch every week, and I think it became The Wicker Man. I think I, I genuinely <laughs> spent a lot of my time at uni kind of binging through that. Um, and um, I suppose the other thing which has sort of drawn me to horror was Doctor Who, really, um, because I've been in, uh, into that since I was fairly young, and basically since before I was brave enough to actually watch horror films. I would do things like... I wanted to watch horror films, but I was too frightened, so I would do things like watch them with the colour turned off and the brightness turned down so that I actually couldn't see anything. Um, <laughs> I remember watching David Cronenberg's The Fly in, in that vein, definitely. Um, it wasn't until I was about 15 that um, I was able to finally actually watch horror films properly, and the reason for that was... I think this all goes back to the fact that I, my brother showed me Robocop when I was about seven. Um, oh, yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and I was so traumatised that I couldn't see anything else that was remotely violent or gruesome, even though I sort of wanted to. Um, but then when I was 14, I borrowed Robocop on, on VHS from a school friend, and I watched it twice in one afternoon. Um, I just watched it and then immediately watched it again. And then after that, I felt like, oh, no, I, I've met the challenge of the gore and the violence. Now I can I can take this on. And I've never looked back from there. So uh, so that's my background and, and, and some of my faves in, in the area of horror. Um, I'll hand over now to um, you, Kirsty, if that's all right. Okay. Um, it's slightly daunting to also thinking about, you know, kind of the, you know, favourite of all um uh yeah so i, I came up with a, a few but now stella because you mentioned carrie i'd forgotten how massively important that was to me as a sort of you know kind of teenager getting yeah. into horror and i think as a female viewer as well it's particularly powerful so yeah. i would like to add that to my list <laughs> um but generally um well, i think one of the first sort of horror ish i'm not going to call it an outright horror film that i that i appreciated massively was uh Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, ah, ditto. Business. Yes. <laughs> um, beautiful, operatic, colourful. Um, yeah, and that was very much kind of up my street. I'd like to draw a line between that film and uh, Hannibal 
because I think they share some qualities in terms of um, aesthetics and heightened emotions. Um, so I love Hannibal very much. Um, and the other two I kind of drew out are slightly different and not necessarily particularly well-known or indeed well-liked. Um, James Marsh's uh, documentary, docudrama, Wisconsin Death Trip. Have you, either of you heard of this? Oh, wow. Yes, I've heard of it. And I remember it when it was new, but I've never seen it. No, it's it's a fantastic... It's a very, well, it's a com- very compelling film. It's about this... Yeah, a town uh, I think it's called Black River Falls which is very apt in West, uh, Wisconsin in like the 1850s or somewhere around there and basically for like a 10 year period this the town goes mad and has like really random um, and often quite macabre things happen so like for example I think a a an opera singer arrives some somewhere out of state um, and she just goes around smashing windows all right um, so it's a and the the whole the film is sort of told um, through the diary entries of the the local newspaper editor, um, and it's so it's um, narrated by Ian Holm reading these diary entries, and then James Marsh sort of you know kind of creates these recreations, which are all shot in black and white, um, of you know the town at that time, um, and then juxtaposes those with you know kind of Black River Falls in the present day at the time of production, um, being very kind of, you know, colourful and kind of um, seemingly a world away from the kind of dark time that it went through, um, you know, kind of 100 years before or so. Um, so I've always found that a kind of really oddly intriguing film and it's very much about the kind of, you know, the beauty of the cinematic frame juxtaposed with, you know, kind of quite macabre imagery. Um, and then my last one, very quickly, is Tarzan Sings the Cell, um, which is, you know, a, again, horror thriller, um, which stars Gen- uh, Jennifer Lopez um, in a very yeah. convincing performance <laughs> as uh, some sort of kind of FBI agent. I don't know. But there's a serial killer um, and he's got all these girls and he's doing horrible things to these girls. And then he has this big brain aneurysm as they just are arresting him. Um, and so there's this futuristic technology where Jennifer Lopez has to go inside his brain, inside his mind to you know kind of uncover where the girls are um and yeah so it's in that those kind of brain mindscapes um that uh sing creates um again the very very beautiful very operatic and kind of juxtaposing lovely aesthetics with you know dark subject matter which that's pretty much what i like when it comes to horror so there you go (laughs) those are mine Two wonderful choices of films I've never seen, and I must check them out now. I do remember The Cell. I couldn't believe that, that you mentioned that, because I think that came out when we were at uni. Yeah. And in fact, I remember your housemate, Tristan Bretain, recommending that film to me. But um, he recommended it in the way that, you know, you recommend a new film. Oh, there's, a, there's an interesting film in the cinema. It carries a lot more weight that you're still recommending that film 20 years later. So um, I think it's about time I finally watched The Cell. I'd kind of forgotten about it, to be honest. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not the greatest film in the world ever, but um, I know that Brian Fuller, um, when kind of talking about Hannibal, talked about that there are certain kind of sequences um, and certain deaths in, in Hannibal that are really inspired by some of the imagery from The Cell. So kind of I was reminded of it more recently because of that connection. Right, wonderful. Okay, well, two films to watch then, for sure. Um, Stella, how about you? Well, 
like Kirsty said, this was really, really hard to think about and try and pin down. Um, I think my favourite horror film, and it's not a very exciting choice, so for that I do apologise, but always in at number one, it's always got to be Wes Craven's Scream. Um, wow. And I think it's because the film, it's a great film. It makes me laugh. It was really smart at the time. Um, but for me, I sort of remember films and how they made me feel sort of at the time that I saw them and the person that I was then. So I remember the day that I went to see Scream. It was the day that we finished school to revise for our GCSEs. So we all piled out of school and we went to the cinema. And I just remember that period of my life. Mm. So it, it sort of locked into that. And then I was thinking, well, what about other films that have stuck in my memory? And most of those come from when I was probably being too young to watch them um, and being allowed to watch Carrie again, to mention that one again. And then films like The Changeling or The Medusa Touch, these really quite low budget 70s horrors. Oh, I, I would know watch. that one. Yeah. Yeah, that I'd watch at home sort of on daytime television when I was when I was younger. <clears throat> and they're the films that have stayed with them because I guess they're the ones that first made me frightened you know Carrie was the film that I didn't sleep for properly for three weeks um and it's still I still find it a, an intense viewing experience um and then after that I think as I've got older have I got more cynical maybe perhaps but I don't feel as frightened by films anymore so I guess all my favorite films are put in this box of when they used to scare me when I was young whereas now I just sit there with the critical cynical eye going well it's not as good as his last one, is it? Oh. <laughs> Which is what I usually have with films. But yeah, I'd have to say my number one film was still and it'll always be Scream because because the film's good and because of how I felt that day when I went to see it. Wow, okay. Um, I remember that time very clearly as well. I remember waiting for the bus um, going home from school on one of my last days at school and there was a poster of a Scream on the little advertising hoarding by the bus stop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that still feels like kind of a fresh memory. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love Scream too. Um, I think there's a, a big name that I, I forgot to mention in my favourites, which I think I'd like to bring up now because I, I'm pretty sure it's close to both of your hearts as well, which is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, some people argue that it's not horror, but... Um, it is. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think so. Um, and it's it's wonderful. It's possibly the first example of a a show that I kind of knew was going to be amazing before I'd even seen it. Yeah. Um, and you know, just as soon as I saw the first trailer, it's like ah, finally something that's been made for me, kind of thing. Um, and it's it's still pretty special. Um, interesting that we, that both of you mentioned Carrie though, um, just because of the of the strangeness of having a remake starring Chloe Grace Moretz. I mean, who'd do that? <laughs> I have, I've not seen it, so I, I cannot comment on the remake, but oh. it pains me that they made it. Yeah, I, I like I like the remake. I think it's really good. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I really well, enjoyed it. Um, well, I haven't seen it, and I'm not knocking it. I just think it's interesting that Chloe Grace Moretz turns up in a lot of horror remakes with she does, Suspiria. Because yeah. she? <laughs> she's in the remake of Let the Right One In yeah. as well. Yeah. So, um, Yes, yeah, so I just thought that was worth mentioning. Okay, so that was that was great. Thanks, guys. Um, I think we've hopefully we've all got a little better um, ideas of where we're coming from, and I've certainly come out of that discussion with 
some interesting ideas of things that I need to watch. Although I now have confirmation that we are all big fans of Hannibal. So that's going to come up at a later point in the podcast, I think. Roses are red, violets are blue. So, Suspiria, 1977, then. So, this is a movie that um, I'd never... that The original 1970... Well, both of them are movies that I'd never seen before this weekend. Um, I think um, your experiences are slightly different, though. Kirsty, what's your experience with Suspiria? You know, I'd seen the original 1977 at some point during my university kind of cinematic binging. Um, however, it might have been very, very early in the morning and I might have been half asleep. So, All right. So, <laughs> so, so a vague <laughs> recollection of it, but only very, very vague. Not great recall in that case. OK. <laughs> uh, how about you, Stella? I first saw it when I was on my degree Um and I did took a horror module in my third year and we had a week on Italian Jello films. So we watched Suspiria um, and that was that was on a Friday afternoon. That was at, at university. So I was probably drunk. What did we go into <laughs> the viewing with any expectations of, if any? I mean, for instance, when I first decided that I should watch Suspiria, it was like 20 years ago, but I just never did. Um, I'd never got around to it until now. But even at the time, I, I only had a vague idea of what it was about i think most of the expectations i had of it was, was that it was just very stylized and violent and strange um and also i think i was kind of given a bit of a tingle by the title because i didn't know what it meant but i was kind of aware i feel that the word suspiria kind of evokes um you know suspense but also the word delirium so I kind of imagined those two things being mashed together, but I had no other expectations really, and I didn't even, I wasn't even really aware that it was set in a dance school. I think possibly until the remake came out, because that was more kind of promoted um, to do with it. I had no real idea what the movie was about. Um, how about you, Kirsty? Um, well, I think what I'd like to do is talk about my my kind of expectations going into it this time because I have a much clearer sort of sense of okay. what that, you know, um, was. So, um, 
I think for me, I, you know, kind of, it's, it's impossible to be a film fan or to be a fan of horror and not know about Suspiria and be yeah. aware of it. Um, so I was kind of, I was certainly aware of it as a sort of, you know, 70s giallo, um, you know, kind of cult film. I was aware of the, you know, kind of its reputation for its vivid colour palette. Um and that's kind of pretty much it. I'm a little bit more... Was, I'm not a massive kind of expert in Giallo, um, and I'm only a little bit more aware of it now because um, the last couple of years I've um, had the pleasure, absolute pleasure, of uh, taking my students through the Babadook, oh, which right. has uh, <laughs> some, you know, kind of Giallo influence in, you know, um, in um, some of its elements. Um So, yeah, so that's kind of it, really. So just kind of, you know, aware of it in that, in that way um so i was kind of expecting something impressive and memorable and yeah and yeah okay um stella how about you i think i was expecting it to be well to make less sense (laughs) than it did so i think when i watched it um again this weekend because it's when did i last watch it would have been 2007 maybe when I, when was I doing my degree I don't even know anymore um but I I think I was expecting it to be more bonkers and to be more off the wall and to be more random and it turns out not to be or maybe I don't know maybe I'm just older and more mature um that it's the stories the story does make sense in a way and I thought it would be more just madness and art and visuals and stuff coming at you and I was surprised that it was as reasonable as it was if that makes sense i hope it does yes um coherent i think is the word yeah yeah i thought it would just be one random scene after another and would not have any sort of flow to it but it turns out that it does tell a story of sorts i think that's fair enough and yes i think i had similar expectations of it um thinking about it and I'd agree, it does actually have a script, um, mm. which I was not entirely expecting, um, especially as I've seen a film called Terror, um, a 1978 British horror film, which I know was intended as kind of a homage to Suspiria, and that movie has no logic to it. It's just crazy supernatural things happen. There's a bit in it where a, a Land Rover starts rotating, um <laughs> that kind of thing so uh yes suspiria was not like that um yeah so suspiria is a very dense graphic um sensory experience could i ask each of you what kind of made the most impression on you um on viewing it either this time or, or when you originally saw it um was it the story or was it an element of the stylization or the um the cinematography of it um stella what did you think i think that the bit of that that sticks with me the most it's it's the score it's the musical score because it's so intense um and because i'd I'd seen clips of it and i'd read enough film books and been to enough film or horror conventions where i've seen bits and bobs of it throughout the years because lots of people re- make reference to it like you said you know a few minutes ago it's a cult film and everybody knows about it you can't be a horror fan without knowing at least of it or what it looks like so I wasn't that taken aback by the visuals and the cinematography because I was aware of it but but just the relentless score 
I found, well, yeah, relentless. It just keeps on at you and it just overtakes the whole film sometimes and you can't hear what people are saying because it's just this noise. And I don't mind noise. I like metal, but that was just noise. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, wow. But yeah, that's what stuck with me. That was the most, it's like, yeah, I just the fact that it just continues with the noise for the duration of the film was mad. The maddest thing about it, I thought. Interesting. Um, I think few people disagree with you on the quality of the music. Um, we'll, we'll discuss. <laughs> I wasn't saying it was quality. <laughs> it was there. Well, by quality, I mean impact, perhaps, is a better yeah. word. Um, so how about you, Kirsty? Okay, so um, I, I agree entirely with the kind of comments about about the music, uh, particularly like when the whispering kind of yeah. vocal starts. It's a bit like, oh, okay, um, and you know, and, and in the mix as well, it is so prominent. But I think for me, it's just that there are these kind of series of of shots that are you know kind of so you know it it feels a little bit storybookish in terms of its you know um art direction art design um the you know the contrast between the really really bold colors um that you know is often a bit discontinuous so there's like there's a, a scene and then not not a spoiler but there's a scene towards the end of the, towards well the second half of the film where um Susie is um I think she's flushing something down the toilet um and there's this kind of you know the what she's sort of around the sink and that is kind of consistently lit with the rest of the scene and then we go into the kind of sh the the what seem to be point of view shots of the toilet bowl that that's got this kind of you know red filter on it um and so the the way that the film kind of uses this you know kind of very very bold color um and you know and together with its you know kind of set design um i just i i find quite kind of um beguiling and you know fascinating and, and quite beautiful i think i'd agree there as well and for my part i'd say that i i'll take both of your points really i think for me it was a combination of the music and the photography and the use of color particularly um, which created this kind of kaleidoscopic effect, which just kind of hypnotizes you. Um, and then keeps, you know, uh, then you have kind of moments of extreme violence and things kind of thrown into the movie fairly regularly to shock you out of the hypnosis in a way. But it, uh, it kind of very quickly pulls you back in. Um, I think it's, it's really strange. It's somehow lulling and aggressive at the same time. And the way that the light and sound of the movie kind of work on you, um, I, I, I like I said before, I, I had kind of minimal expectations in a way, but it's hard to um, categorise the effect of it. Um, it's pretty unique. I, I can't think of another movie that I feel is kind of similar. We will touch on, you know, other Argento movies and things like that, but even having um, seen some of his other films I don't think they're that similar really um, I have to say I haven't seen any of his later films so I don't know if, if later Argento movies try and recreate the effect but um, uh, this one creates quite an impact kind of visually and, and auditorily 
Um, yeah, I have, to, I have to say, Dan, I'm quite interested in... Um, I haven't seen any, but I'm quite interested in seeing the other two films in the kind of Three Mothers trilogy. Yes, Inferno and... Um, and, yeah, the, the more recent one, Name Escapes Me. But, the, I mean, the, you know, to kind of look at the films that are meant to be kind of link, linked by this, you know, kind of De Quincey, um, uh, you know, kind of influence, I think. Yes. That, that seems like a, an interesting experience for me. Yes, I think I'd quite like to see it. It certainly sounds like at least the the earliest, or, or, or I'm sorry, the next one, Inferno, is is quite good. Um, I'm just looking up the title of the third film, um, Mother of Tears. That's it. So, yeah. The film's been described as dreamlike, and I think we've just hinted at that in the way we've discussed what makes the most impact on us as viewers. Um, can you talk a little more about the various ways in which the film creates a kind of dreamlike atmosphere? Um, yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I've said before about that sense of discon- discontinuity in the way in which the kind of colours um, are kind of edited together. It goes against, doesn't it, the way in which, you know, kind of uh, films are conventionally edited to create that sense of coherent time and space. Um, so I think that's a pretty big one. Um and again, the music does a lot for for that kind of dreamlike um, uh, atmosphere as well. Um, but I was actually kind of thinking about this, um, and I actually think um, <laughs> slightly controversial statement. I think, given I think some of the things we're going to talk about later, but I didn't find Susie a particularly well drawn character. I think she's quite bland. Okay. Um, yeah. And because of that, I think she sort of operates as a really, really kind of obvious kind of proxy for the viewer in exploring this kind of strange space. So it's almost like as she's kind of. Um, you know, moving through these spaces. And she, you know, again, not to, to kind of give spoilers, but she doesn't always understand the relevance of the things that are happening around her. She doesn't always connect with those um, in terms of just being, you know, aware or, you know, emotionally present. Um, and so I think her, that you know, her kind of quietness in the middle of all this obvious kind of chaos um, is for me, part of the way in which the film kind of becomes dreamlike. Oh, that's interesting. I'd agree with you to some extent there. Yeah. Um, Stella, is there anything you'd like to say about the dreamlike nature of the movie? Well, I think I'll bring it back to the sound because, um, as Kirsty mentioned before, like the, the whispering when that's in the mix as well and how it the diegetic and non-diegetic sound, I suppose, how that drops in and out of it's this really intense... It's by Goblin, isn't it? The, the band that made that noise it is Dario Argento's um, frequent collaborators goblin yeah so I think when that's coming in and out and it's sometimes going over the top of people's speech so you can't hear what the characters are saying all the time and what they are saying sometimes very muffled so I think that adds the dreamlike quality because you you're not quite fully understanding what's going on because all, all you've got is that is that all-encompassing sound you know that's swishing around you is with the music and with the whispering um, and I think that adds to the feeling of what what's going on. And like you just said, you know, Susie's wandering around a bit sort of wet sometimes. I feel like <laughs> she could, you know, she's like, come on, Susie, put your finger out. Like, let's do something about this. Sure. But she's just, it, everything's just very heavy with the sound and with the light. And it just means that you can't quite see what's happening. You can't get a handle on what's going to happen next. And 
you know, I don't know about you guys, but I certainly don't remember any uh, long speeches from my dreams. Maybe <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's true. If anything, there was kind of more um, structured dialogue and straightforward scenes in the film than I was expecting. Um, yeah. Kind of tying with your expectations, Stella. Um, you know that. Yeah. But okay, so I, I'd like to kind of touch briefly on you know the story of the film even though we've kind of established that the story is not the main element in the movie, but there is one, and certainly for the benefit <laughs> of anybody who might be listening to this thinking about watching the movie or, or summoning up the will to watch the movie, um, I'd, like to, <laughs> I'd like to sum it up. Well, you know what it's like being a student. Um, you get tired of being told what, films, what kind of films to watch. Um, so... Uh, the friend of the podcast, uh, Steve Timms, who was on our last episode talking about Halloween 3, um, is a critic who writes for Storgy magazine, which is storgy.com. And on there he's written a retrospective a couple of years ago, just ahead of the release of the remake. He wrote a, respective article, a, retro a retrospective article about this version of Suspiria. Um, and he summed up the plot, which I thought was... Um, very neatly summed up and we could make use of that I think as well you know it's worth noting that um, Suspiria although you know generally associated with Dario Argento was actually a screenplay by Argento and uh, Daria Nicolodi who was Argento's partner at the time I believe and they were taking inspiration at least as far as the title's concerned from um, the 19th century book of essays by Thomas de Quincey called Suspiria de Profundis, which means sighs from the depths. Um, I don't think they were necessarily inspired by the content, um, unless either of you know differently. Um, I, well, I actually, I went and I'm <laughs> a little bit kind of curious, so I went and found it online. You can find find it. Um, okay. And I mean, it, it, yeah, it doesn't have massive amounts that you know kind of ties to but what's interesting is that um in i think uh the uh yeah the kind of mother suspiriorum our lady of size that she, in in the uh essay um he does actually locate her in the town in uh freeburg um uh where the where the film set so okay. that's that's in there um there is more, but you know, <laughs> I like I like rabbit holes, you know, um, in terms of kind of source material. So um, you can find it um, online, the whole the whole book. Oh, that's brilliant! Oh, well, that's good to know. Um, okay, so Steve Timms's plot synopsis goes thus: Suspiria begins with the American student Susie Banyan, played by Jessica Harper, flying to Munich and arriving at the airport in the middle of a violent thunderstorm. Susie is due to enrol at the prestigious Tanz Academy in Freiburg. Is it Freiburg or Freiburg? Yeah, my German is not good enough yet to say. <laughs> Fair enough. I think it might be Freiburg. It's, prob it's, probably, Fre it's probably Freiburg. Yeah. Probably. Um, the Tanz Academy in Freiburg. We know this because of the fleeting voiceover which begins the story and is never heard again. After hailing a taxi, Susie witnesses another student, Pat Hengel, Eva Axon fleeing from the school and overhears her mumble the words secret and iris. Not long after, Pat is brutally murdered, initiating a series of odd occurrences and mysterious deaths. 
With the help of new friend Sarah, Stefania Cassini, Susie begins to suspect that the Tans Academy is actually a coven led by an ancient witch, Helena Marcos, or Mater Suspiriorum, to use her official queenly title. And I think we should mention that um, for anyone who does want to check Suspiria out, it's available in the place where we all watched it this time, which is Amazon Prime. So let's talk for a moment about how satisfying it is as a story. I mean, I think... I agree with what you've just said, Kirsty, about the fact that the lead character is, is undeveloped, um, kind of vague and really an audience proxy. But I think that the story works quite well because even though she is like that, there's a great deal of... Um, empathy that the audience can feel with that character they can identify very easily with that character maybe because she's so simple i think actually there's an argument to be made that um horror movies kind of need very identifiable protagonist protagonists and um i think susie as played by jessica harper is a pretty good example mainly because jessica harper's kind of visual performance is so engaging i think She's got a very, very expressive face. Um, she's got huge eyes. She kind of struck me a little bit like a kind of Pixar animated figure. <laughs> she's she's so thin and yet so expressive. Um, and I think that kind of helps you to... Well, it, it means the actress is able to communicate a lot of emotion like fear and distress to the audience. And, and that kind of keeps you involved. I did care about Susie. And, I, and to be fair, I think I cared about almost all the characters on the screen, even, you know, supposedly villainous characters, because they were quite interesting and engaging. I think Miss Tanner was a great character. Um, so I, I would say that it's it works as a kind of story, but it's very, very straightforward and kind of loose the way that the events of the story are linked together and I think we'll probably talk more as we go along about how vague and unexplained <laughs> quite a lot of it is um, what would you say Stella? Um, well like I said before the, sto the story is there and I was surprised that it was so realised as it was because I was expecting just an hour and a half of madness um, but it, having said that the story is still very much secondary i think to to the staged deaths which some of which are really good um sure. went secondary to the the artistic vision of the film if you can call it that um it it looks incredible it sounds bonkers and the story is just sort of humming along underneath all of that and it's as far as having sympathy or empathy or understanding susie's character i think i found her to be a bit a bit weak i think she could have been more proactive mm. i felt that sarah was perhaps more proactive because she's she was talking about counting steps and doing all that sort of stuff so i i don't know i think that susie rather could have got on the case a bit quicker and you know stop drinking the wine it's clearly making you pass out <laughs> put the wine down <laughs> Okay. Why do I keep feeling so sleepy? <laughs> well, that's the half pint of wine you keep chonged after your dinner. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, fair points, I think. Um, anything you'd like to add to that, Kirsty? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I kind of uh, agree with Stella's assessment of, of, um, 
of Susie. I I mean, I think structurally it's it's fairly conventional, isn't it? In yeah. the kind of the, the way in which horror films often kind of operate and Susie's a fairly kind of typical, although not very kind of agentic, um, uh, final girl kind yeah. of archetype. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of, I was, yeah, I don't want to kind of go into spoilers, but I was expecting a slightly different ending than the one that we got. Okay. Um, and and when thinking about the kind of structure and thinking about the narrative, and I I mean I agree in terms of it, was, it surprised me that the the kind of narrative was or the structure of it was kind of so there, <laughs> you know, not kind of it wasn't a little bit more kind of more dreamlike and more kind of um, uh, you know kind of poetic, um, but um, I was sort of reminded of um, uh, Martin Scorsese talking about Vertigo. Um, in his way of, of kind of characterising vertigo structure um, in that it's, you know, the narrative is kind of irrele irrelevant. It's just this kind of, this line to hang, you know, these other bits on the kind of set pieces or whatnot. And I, I felt like that made sense to me in terms, or, or made, uh, Suspirium made sense in those terms that the kind of the structure is not, well, the narrative is not that important, but it's the way in which you kind of move from the set pieces in a way that seems, you know, relatively straightforward. Okay. Um, let's move on to the setting of the story then. Um, Kirsty, what would you say is interesting about the the setting that they've chosen to tell this story in and the visual way they've represented that setting? Well, I think I think partly what needs to be obviously can recognise is that the film is set in Germany, but it wasn't made in Germany, okay. um, and so the kind of <laughs> really kind of comes through the way the film looks um, because I think it was Italy, so it's a lot you know kind of sunnier and brighter in the external shots, um, uh, and so the kind of that sense of the important the the importance of the german kind of context for the film and for the the dance school in particular is kind of less important hmm. but i had that kind of sense when i was watching it but so much of the action takes place within the kind of the dance school and i i'd love to go back actually and look at the film in terms of thinking about the a little bit like you know kind of susie and sarah do and thinking about the kind of the internal geometry of the spaces um i'm not convinced that you know the kind of the way in which the spaces are represented inside the kind of facade of the exterior makes an awful lot of sense in reality but it's horror and it's dreamlike so that's fine um right. but i was just i kind of interested in the way in which the you know the moment that sort of susie enters the film the moment that she arrives in in kind of munich and in this kind of you know the, the beginning of the film that everything seems like you know sort of liminal that she's you know kind of transitioning that there are these transitional spaces she moves through it's gonna sound rather obvious but moves through kind of doorways and kind of the set design kind of includes you know doorways and windows um and you know there are kind of elements of um particularly in um in Madame Blanc's, you know, um, parlour, these elements of kind of trompe l'oeil um, and, um, you know, kind of sense of portals in the set design, um, which just sort of, I think, particularly within the school, creates this sort of sen sense of a, a space that 
that is, you know, is mu- it, like the TARDIS is, is kind of <laughs> really big or has this kind of an ending, um, you know, uh, yeah, kind of sense of space. Um, and so therefore the kind of possibilities are, you know, are, are also kind of vast. You don't quite know what's going to um, to emerge from those spaces. Um, and that often that sort of sense of the you know the kind of what is beyond the window beyond the door beyond that portal is quite frightening and that no you know the the moment that's made really really clear is at the beginning with you know with what happens to pat and the hands that kind of come through the window um Mm. yeah so that's my thoughts okay by the way just because i don't think there'll be another time to mention it um it did amuse me that the uh, the character that we've just mentioned was called pat hingle um, not to yeah. be confused with the actor who played Commissioner Gordon in the 1990s Batman movies. <laughs> uh, but, uh, That's not a connection I'd made, Dan. <laughs> right. Well, you know, possibly it wouldn't even make a footnote in a serious book about this film. But um, it occurred to me, so I thought I'd mention it. I think it's worth thinking about where this movie fits in with our understanding of Argento as a filmmaker. You know, I as I mentioned earlier, you know, I've seen earlier Argento films than this. I haven't seen later ones, so I've seen uh, his first film, which was uh, a serial killer thriller released in 1970 called *The Bird with the Crystal Plumage*. Um, and I've seen one of his later films from '75, I think, which is *Deep Red*, or to give it its Italian title, which makes it possibly my favourite title ever. It's called *Profondo Rosso*. Um, <laughs> which stars David Hemmings. And both of these are kind of, in a way, fairly conventional murder mysteries, but which explode into violence at certain points. I remember finding, actually, these films slightly uh, disappointing in that, they were again, they were so linear. I think my subconscious impression of what Suspiria was meant to be like it probably led me to expect that all Argento films would be like that. Um, they're not they're, they're they're more stately and more logical, but they do have these explosions of strange violence. I think possibly um, Deep Red has a scene or two that are more upsetting violently than than anything in Suspiria, um, but the overall film isn't as powerful. Um, I also have a suspicion that. Um, He's a filmmaker who's kind of interested in the the horror subgenre of the giallo, which is um, giallo is Italian for yellow, and apparently the name is taken from the colour of the uh, dust jackets of kind of cheap thriller paperbacks that were sold in Italy, um, mm. from which these movies drew inspiration and tended to have plots in which often male serial killers stalked females um, and you can see that as a recurrent thread in the earlier Argento movies um, I kind of get the impression that he really enjoyed the stalking and uh, violence sequences and wasn't so interested in the plot type stuff so he was thinking <laughs> how can I make one of these movies without having to include a, a, a kind of complex rational uh, background narrative for it oh wait a minute supernatural so he started thinking in that direction and um, 
hence we get Suspiria. Um, what do you guys think about Argento's kind of body of work, and have you experienced any of his other movies? And and how do you think they compare with Suspiria? So Stella. Yes. <laughs> um. I've seen Birds of Crystal Plumage myself, and I have seen Inferno, but not for an awfully long time. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, Argento's films are not the kind of horror that I gravitate towards. Mm. Though I realise in saying that, my reasoning for that doesn't actually make any sense. So the reason that I'd say I wouldn't necessarily gravitate towards Argento's films would be because of the kind of lack of plot in places. But then I think, well... You know, you really like Scream. That's not really <laughs> a complex and twisting plot, is it either? So, well, um, I'd, I'd argue I mean, it's that got, it's quite clever. But. It's it's clever, but it's it's not aged well. Um, I think I would more consider Argento's work and where it sits in in the rest of of horror, and think how it always comes up as this point of point of reference. You, you must watch Suspiria, you must watch his films and how important they are to horror as a whole, how important they are to this idea of cult cinema and you're not a proper horror fan until you've watched an Argento movie. And I think that's the most interesting point for me is sort of where it sits in relation to people's um, idea of their own cultural capital, or their own worth or their own knowledge of horror is if they've seen Argento's films or not. And I think that's the interesting point to consider. Okay. It sounds a little bit like you find the idea of watching his movies kind of more dutiful because of the cultural yeah. weight that's placed upon them. Um, yeah, they've been given this cultural legitimacy of, you know, this is a cult film, this is an important moment in horror, it was happening in Italy, not America, and if you're going to study horror, you, you need to watch this, and it's like, okay, then you watch it, and you go with expectations like we've talked about, and then you see it, and you go, huh. Okay, <laughs> and then you move on with your life. <laughs> so it, it, did, it wasn't like a, a a really groundbreaking moment for me when when I saw Suspiria or Bird of the Crystal Plumage. It was more just I'm more interested in where it sits or people's opinion of it and how important it sh important it should be compared to how necessarily good or quality driven the film actually is. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, Kirsty, would you like to weigh in on that? Um, I can do, but not with a great amount of um, kind of uh, knowledge or experience. I mean, I, you know, kind of understand Stella's point about that kind of the, the cultural capital that these films yeah. seem to have. Um, um, and I'm not, to be, I think this is still the only Argento film that I've I've seen. Um, and obviously up until this weekend, I'd not paid massive amount of attention to it. But mm -hmm. um, I... Um, I'm, you know, been aware of Argento um, and aware of Giallo, and, and particularly that kind of emphasis on female suffering. And it's one of those things that that actually, as a as a viewer, kind of just knowing that, that was so pre prominent, um, put me off kind of going towards those films. Um, and so I can't really talk about how Suspiria fits in with his other work. But what I found really interesting in watching that is, you know, kind of thinking about the way in which the camera operates okay because the the camera you know um his use of camera is is very you know the first thing that struck me about it is is it feels really, really 70s 
yeah. those kind of very slow pans and kind of zoom ins, um, which you know kind of don't use so much anymore. Um, but increasingly through the film, he uses these really kind of um, he creates these really interesting frames. So there's a bit where you know the bit Stella was talking about before about drinking the wine. There's a really interesting kind of interestingly framed shot with her drinking the wine. Yeah, which is just you know okay. Well, that's you know not a way I would have thought about constructing that shot, but it's you know it kind of creates this sort of slightly oblique kind of you know left field perspective or eye in the film, um, and increasingly that those those the way in which he constructs frames or frames within frames and um, is uh, kind of interesting and invites as a spectator I think as to you know as many horror films do sort of understand that something or someone is watching because of either the height of the shots so or this shot in the swimming pool with Susie and um and Sarah where it looks like they're being kind of you know kind of watched over um but even the, the there's a shot with um Susie when she's talking to the I forget the name of the 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 doctor the um played by Udo Kier um yes where he just pushes in towards the kind of you know a lovely balanced kind of reflection of them um so I kind of what was interesting about the film, I, I thought, is yes, there's female suffering, but actually, and yes, the camera work is very seventies. But I, I found myself more kind of intrigued by the, what, you know, the kind of the choices he made with the camera and where to put it. Mm. So I'd like to see if that's true of you know of, of others, other films of his. Yes, I think that what we need is a greater knowledge of the following films, really, and and I think also. Um, I'd like to know more about the kind of influence that these movies had on American films. Um, I wonder if, uh, for instance, Argento might be very influential on the kind of slasher genre. As we discussed, um, for listeners who might have heard our previous episodes about Halloween, um, I actually haven't seen that many slasher movies. I kind of decided that I liked Halloween and that would do. Um, so I avoided most of the other ones, but um, obviously it's a vast, vast genre. You know, we're probably talking hundreds of films that were made in that style in the 80s. Um, yeah. And obviously they would have been made by people who were very aware of Argento uh, and, and his kind of history. And I wonder if the way that they um, set up those kind of violence and, and exploit things like female suffering is kind of similar to Argento. Um but again, we're kind of getting back to the idea of duty and, and research rather than enjoyment. I, I'm not sure I, I <laughs> immediately rushed to, to watch any of those movies, but it is a very interesting question. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned um, there about the tendency of Argento to kind of exploit female suffering in his movies. Um, I'd like to talk about the fact that this is a fairly rare example of a horror film with a mainly female cast, almost entirely yeah. female. Um, and that creates a unique kind of horror um, in many ways. Um, and I'd like to ask you both about that. Stella first, um, what did you find that um, the movie creates in terms of horror that's distinctly female? I think there's there's a lot of focus on the female body in the film, I think, 
and I mean, across lots of horror as well, you know, fe- usually female bodies are the ones that are being chopped up and, you know, long lingering deaths on female bodies where lots of male characters tend to die off screen. Um, sure. But in Suspiria, I think there's there's little nods, I think, throughout to um, to not just blood, but to menstrual blood. And I don't know if I was reading too much into it, and I might be, because I might just be, I've been schooled in looking at the psychoanalytical approach to films. Um but so the first death where she falls through the glass thing in the ceiling, that really nice ornate glass thing that gets shattered. Sure. And she falls through it and she's kind of hung then, isn't she? And you've got the blood dripping down her legs and it sort of looks like menstrual blood dripping down her legs. And then again, when Susie um, is being a wet lettuce in uh, her first dance <laughs> class and she's like, oh, I'm, 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 ever, I'm ever so faint. Um, and she's flopping around and then she's she's bleeding from her nose and from her mouth so i think there's a there's a focus on menstrual blood i think and there's a nod to that slightly in the 2018 version with the costumes i think but also and i'm just looking at my notes here that i made and i was watching the film i've written down flowers and fannies (laughs) (laughs) the constant use of the flowers so the irises and then when she's in um is it madame blanc's parlor with all the flowers and the portals it's her bedroom isn't it or her yeah private quarters and the walls are just covered in flowers and it was like they meant to be sort of symbolic of well fannies <laughs> that's what I was getting from that that her sort of becoming the female body is being very very fragile because they're through all these wafer thin dancers female bodies that are very very easily chopped up female bodies that where the camera the camera angles and the story keeps pointing to menstrual blood and then the walls being covered in slightly labia looking flowers and was like mm, yeah it's, i think it's just all about fannies is <laughs> <laughs> what i've written um, <laughs> and then yeah <laughs> that's where i think the women sit in this film and obviously the women are in control and the women are as monstrous as any male character because they're they're witches um yeah i'll stop there i'll stop talking about fannies <laughs> I think what we're saying there is that kind of the male gaze is still very much present in the film, even though there are minimal male characters and certainly, mm. you know, very few kind of male viewpoint characters in the movie. Um, Kirsty, I think you had a point that, that there are um, a number of uh, of masculine characters in the movie that are at least significant in in certain ways, unlike... And I, I don't want to go into too much detail about no. this, but they've really minimised the number of male characters in the remake, haven't they? Yeah, I think for yeah. me, I I was really, you know, again, the the film comes with this reputation of being really kind of female, gynocentric. Um, uh, and, you know, so I was actually really surprised about the amount of male characters. Um, so obviously there's, uh, I think it's, is it Daniel who's the... Um, they're kind of the blind piano player. Oh, yeah. Um, and then oh, yeah. there's the kind of, uh, again, I forget his name, the sort of lurch-like kind of um, servant <laughs> with the teeth. Um, and then the, you know, very much the the little, you know, kind of um, the, the young boy who very much looks like, you know, kind of children, a child of the corn. Um, oh, yeah. So I, uh, and, and then again, in the dance studio as well, although, you know, 
the, a lot of the film doesn't, you know, kind of play up the idea that it's a, you know, it's a dance school. Um, but there are quite a few male dancers in in the scenes in the dance studio, although you know they're not really doing much, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so I I was really surprised that actually it had as much kind of male representation. And again, not to be a spoiler, but that there is some male suffering in the mm. film as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and then again, you've got the, 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 I mean, the one thing as from a sort of slightly feminist perspective that slightly, you know, annoys me is that, you know, Susie goes and gets this kind of, you know, scholarly, knowledgeable information from um, a professor and a doctor towards the end of the film who are not, you know, yeah. kind of part of uh, or attached to the school at all. Um, so, yeah, so it's not, I don't really have any formed points other than just it surprised me that it was more than I thought. Um, and, yeah, and the, the yeah, 2018 does absolutely minimize that and i think for me that film is stronger because of it because it you know really sort of focuses on the idea of the kind of of female community and female representation um in all of the ways in which stella um talks about it. and actually said i have a question if that's okay oh, <laughs> um, which is to do with um the way that uh, whether or not you feel like you know kind of barbara creed's idea of the monstrous feminine yeah is present in this film or not Yes, for sure. I think because the women are presented as monstrous witches, the idea that... So I've got this written down here. So you could kind of read the the whole school, really, as, um, as like a womb sort of situation, I guess, so a symbolic representation of the womb figuratively in the film with lots of these long passages leading off. Yeah. Um, and the representation of the womb as a place that is familiar and unfamiliar is acted out throughout the film. So she's in the presence, she's in the presence rather of these gory monstrosities with the recurrent imagery using the blood, the very very pink blood as well. And then suddenly it's a comforting place where she's got a friend in a bedroom and it's all very very nice. Another way you could sort of bring Barbara Creed's works into it is um, the witches being held up as in lots of other films, not just this one, which has been held up as um, as castrators. So, you know, collecting male organs in great numbers in other films. But in, in this film, they're... And I guess maybe more so in the 2008, 2018 version where the police guy comes round and they're, yeah. they're pulling up his, his shirt and they're laughing at his penis. I mean, we've all been there. But... They're they're threatening him with castration yeah. and they're threatening the male control and the male patriarchy with their supernatural powers. So you can think about it in that way as as another way. But thirdly, the idea of Barbara Creed, not Barbara Creed, um, to move the witch and the body and the monstrousness and the grotesqueness potentially of a female body and turn it into a debate about abjection that Argento uses frequently throughout this mm. film. So you've got corpses and mutilated bodies featuring in the film to that scares us sick. And then you've got the monster threatening the border between human and non-human. So you've got the witch upstairs, what she's called the directress, they call her, don't they? Yeah. Where she Is she human? Is she not human? So you've got another border being broken there. And then the maternal witch as abject. So she's linked with the time when the child grows away and breaks away from the mother. So it becomes separate. So the border's broken. Yeah. I, and, I, I... Go on. 
I was just thinking about how that might link in with sort of Susie's kind of um, uh, kind of arc in the third act and, you know, the yeah. way in which she sort of kind of, again, no spoilers because we've already talked about her <laughs> as a final girl, but the way in which, you know, she emerges having kind of gone through this suffering and gone through this transition sort of out of that space as a sort of symbolic rebirth. Definitely a symbolic rebirth. You've got her in the water with uh, Sarah at one point, haven't you? So you can, you can see that as a symbolic rebirth. And in a way, you can almost see it as a coming-of-age movie. You might be stretching it slightly, but yeah. she she does have to grow up and she does have to confront the evil mother and, you know, say, I'm not doing what you want me to do, which yeah. is what everybody does at one point. And then, yeah, then you've got the ending of the movie that we won't spoil. Yeah. <laughs> Marvellous. No spoilers is good. Yeah, I think in a strange way, because we've we've all watched both the original and the remake in close proximity, um, the remake starts to overwrite the original a bit. I'd forgotten that there were male dancers in it, and, and coming back to it, it's kind of a slightly strange idea that there do mm-hmm. seem to be men involved in this coven, even though they're in kind of servant roles. Um, you know, I think your instinctive understanding of a witch's coven is that they would be all female. Um, That'd be your instinctive understanding. Well, then. maybe, and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you about that, Kirsty, but, um, uh, but it does kind of support my... My idea is that basically the movie isn't too interested in kind of the mechanics of a witch's coven, uh, Argento just wanted some justification for supernatural um, shenanigans. Uh, and, and I think there are probably a few points in the movie which I don't really understand the plot significance of or, or, or the general significance of, like the, the whole sequence with the, the maggots. Uh, also, things like... Uh, I, I kind of read the... Um, I think it's the death of Pat early in the film that she was being attacked by a male figure um, and I thought who was that but, but now I remember that there actually are men involved which I'd forgotten about <laughs> so so okay so he so you know it's probably fairly explicable but okay so Kirsty um what what would you like to say about the way that the film kind of uses the idea of um, a witch's coven and how that relates to both the kind of reality of that and also how that's used in other movies so that's a big question um no i think i mean i think it's it's a big question and there are many many different responses to that i think it depends on your your you know your perspective as um you know as a viewer and also with a knowledge of you know the kind of time or the context of, of production um i think that in many ways, the idea of a witch or a coven of witches um, often seems framed by patriarchal cinematic structures as being, you know, this expression of um, feminine empowerment that does not have need of, you know, of men. Um, And that that's part of the reason why it is kind of scary, fundamentally. Um, And I think that, you know, that there's... um, again not to, to it's not a spoiler but there's a there's a line in this in the remake with um one of the the mothers who talks about kind of um ignoring female delusions or free framing kind of female problems as delusions right. um and i think that mm. both well that 
both films sort of draw into that sort of sense of, um, you know, kind of the female experience as being sort of discounted um, and rationalised away by male experience and male interpretation. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the discussion of paganism and witchcraft on screen is a bigger conversation. Sure. Um, I'm really interested in those representations in as far as they reflect a kind of Christian patriarchal understanding where, you know, kind of witches are commonly represented as female, um, even sure. though mm. the kind of pagan community is, is you know, is is not just women and not just straight women either um mm. or you know um so i think that that's you know something that needs to be recognized but okay. it's yeah it's, it's a big it's a big discussion dan well maybe that's something that we can build an episode around <laughs> yeah something that yeah. did occur to me while watching this film was i actually can't think of that many films about witchcraft or at least i didn't think i could um yeah but then as i asked myself the question I kept coming up with others, whether I'd seen them or not, you know, um, you know, the witches of Eastwick, the craft, um, uh, obviously recently the witch, um, and, mm -hmm. and even yeah. more recently Gretel and Hansel. And it probably does run through kind of cinema, uh, almost as strongly as things like vampires, um, oh, yeah. or other kind of horror tropes, which I had considered, uh, kind of more prevalent um so it, it'd be interesting to explore that and to yeah. find some yeah I, I guess it's probably more a question of i just haven't seen a lot of really interesting films about witches i mean i haven't even seen haxon <laughs> i think there's a perhaps for a future episode that you know do you obviously talked about the wicker man earlier but thinking yeah. about the way in which you know kind of folk horror um you know how that kind of develops an understanding of, you know, or contributes to a mainstream kind of understanding of, of yeah. you know, kind of pagan traditions um, in a way that isn't terribly helpful. <laughs> right, <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> um, right, yeah, uh, I'd like to have that conversation. Um, okay, so, I mean, we're getting to the end of, uh, I think, of having said everything that I thought we wanted to say about uh, the 1977 Suspiria. I'll just ask you both, um, we've obviously... Um, kind of dissected the film in, in a lot of ways and drawn a lot out of it. Um, do you feel it still works as a piece of entertainment? Would you recommend it on that level? Um, I'll start with you, Kirsty. Yes, I would. Um, not to everybody, though. <laughs> I no, think no. that it's, you know, I think if I was, you know, as I often am, I'm in a room full of students who are really kind of interested in cinema and, you know, I always have... Uh, a couple every year who are particularly interested or the beginning of their kind of being really interested in horror, um, it would be certainly one that I would point them at if they had not already seen it. But I think, um, you know, if you're not a, a fan of horror, um, it's not necessarily one that's going to grab your attention for mm. its runtime. Um, sure. But that said, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that I found really interesting um, and valuable about it. Great. How about you, Stella? I suspect I know what you're going to say, but go on. <laughs> um, I agree with Kirsty. I think, as as I frequently am, though not only at the moment, but in a room full of students, and that, you know, they are interested in horror. They've come to me because they want to learn about horror. It, you know, it's it's always going to go on my list of films to watch that you give that I give students at the start of a of a horror module. It's always going to be there, um, because 
like I said before, it's a, a seminal moment in horror film and you should see it if if anything just to look at what it looks like and to hear what it sounds like and to see to to say that you've seen it I think I think it's important and it is valuable in that sense because it's an excellent um signpost as to what was going on in Italian horror cinema then sure um and for my part I I think I'd recommend it too but I'll put a similar caveat that Kirsty put onto mm. it which is that to my tastes I thought it was good um, I think it's, you know, uh, a fairly thrilling example of uh, cinema. Um, you know, its use of colours and its use of music and things like that uh, mean that it, it it's a very thrilling kind of 90 minutes, I think. Um, and this is where we get to talk about the remake. I think, to my tastes, I would prefer the, I'd prefer the original to the remake, but... Um, uh, obviously, we don't have very much time to talk about this, um, but how do we all feel about the remake, um, having recently watched it and directly compared it with the original? I mean, not to say that it's necessarily essential to compare it to the original. Does it stand as a film in its own right, and how do we feel about it? Um, Stella, we'll start with you, I think, because um, I think you like remakes in general, and I'd like you to explain a little about that. <laughs> Um, I do love a remake and I think that's because I'm intrinsically a very lazy person and right. already kn- already knowing a story or a monster or where something's going to end kind of feeds into my, oh, I can just sort of sit and let this wash over me. Um, but with with a Suspiria remake, I think it was, it was different enough to it to sort of stand on its own. Um, but I think... Like I said, I do always enjoy a remake. I'm always going to watch remakes and reboots and prequels and sequels because I I enjoy the fact that the horror genre does do that. Um, and I've always, always been very keen on the idea that remakes and reboots or whatever you want to call them, they're okay and they don't harm the original. The original still stands and it's all right and you don't need to get upset that somebody's remade a film. Um, and I always feel a bit... Uh, defensive i suppose about the fact that i do like remakes so much when lots of other people do get really upset about it and i like to point out that you know there's other stories that get remade and remade and remade and remade and nobody cares like dracula for instance how many dracula films are we going to have and that's fine but when other stuff gets remade people start going oh no don't do it don't touch it and it's like well you've not touched it the original still stands and it's still good and it's unharmed and we can see them as existing alongside each other rather than one replacing the other Yes, and I think sometimes it's helpful to think of them as analogous to like cover versions of songs. Yeah. You know, you might prefer the original, that's fine. So how did you feel about this remake in particular? So which one did I prefer? Well, I mean, just did you what did you feel about the remake? Did you like it or I think in terms of a viewing experience, the nineteen seventy seven was more of an experience. I think the remake was well it was an hour longer, wasn't it, for a start. Um and I think the remake wasn't as much horror as the original. I felt the remake had elements of other films going on in it as well. Um, I would say, if you, say you can watch one of them again, which one would you watch again? I'd probably watch the original, but just because it was more of a sensory experience. And I think the remake was, it was more drawn out. It was more subtle. It was a lot more gloomy. Um, and I just didn't, feel as moved by it 
I suppose. Mm. So how about you then, Kirsty? Um, for me, I I really liked the remake. Um, I think because I watched well both of them. I think on the same day, right? Um, but at either ends of the day. Um, so I, um, or at least I finished watching them on the same day. Um, that, but the the experience of the second one that for me is just sort of it's sat I've sat with it for longer and I just I feel more kind of affected by the experience of the second one than I did the first one and I think partly f- that is because of the extra hour I know that mm. it's as it, it, it is more of a slog um I think that the extra hour uh well um in terms of the narrative develops the mythology more yeah um and emphasizes the context so I mean again I think it's worth just from a you know kind of a context position that that Suspiria 1977 is a contemporary film and Suspiria 19 uh sorry uh, 2018 is a period film so that sort of sense of it being set in the kind of you know Baden-Meinhof you know kind of uh era of German kind of history um is really important I think to the the way that the story develops um and that dramatic mirroring of the kind of the external world and the internal world in terms of what's going on inside the the studio, um, I I was so grateful actually, and I felt like a little bit um, sort of hard done by that that dance didn't feature more in the original. Yeah. As part yeah. of the visual, you know, kind of the poetic language of the film. So I thought that the kind of dance set pieces, particularly the kind of Volk performance yeah. with the red costumes, was I thought really stunning. It was great. Yeah. The dance is much more integral to the remake, mm. and it's better yeah. for it. Yeah, and there are some, you know, I also agree with Stella, but it's not as much horror. There, yeah. and there are other things going on. I thought the kind of the f- the way in which the the story develops in a very different way. The ending is very different than the first one. Mm. Um, <laughs> is uh was, to say the was least. Yeah. yeah to say the least was also really spectacular um and from a sort of perspective of uh you know the way in which our our understanding of certain characters again those no spoilers um and certain ideas sort of shifts quite dramatically from the first one to the second film which i thought was more contemporary more interesting susie's arc is you know again also a bit more complex she's a bit more well developed um and all of those are kind of, I think, a gift of a more contemporary perspective and more time. Yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, I agree with all those things. I think it's a fascinating movie, the remake, and I think it would be a really interesting discussion, which I'm desperate to have. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have time uh, this episode, but perhaps in a future one. Uh, but uh, to say my piece, I would say that um, it does do a disservice to the remake to feel that it has to be compared to the original. I I think that it entirely stands as its own piece of work. It's not really a remake to me. It's kind of taking the same basic idea and executing it in in an entirely new way. And stylistically, it's very different. Um, And it does take some of the plot structure and the character names and things from the original, but it does very, very different things with them. but I do think there are some bizarre and baffling things about it, but we'll have to get into that another time. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Uh, Although, can I, can I just special shout out, though, to uh, the Tom York soundtrack? 
All right. Was just I've I found just utterly sublime, um, and <laughs> le- it's a slightly more kind of romantic and less, you know, less distracting yeah. than the uh, Goblin soundtrack from the seventies. It's, well, it's less bonkers than Goblin. Absolutely, yes. um, it's less bonkers. But I just <laughs> on my notes, I've got written at the top Tom York soundtrack, and underneath I've written no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think one of your other notes said, meh. Yeah, um, meh about the score. I, I thought it was very nice, but... Um, it was nice, but I don't think... Nice is not what I want, Dan. Well, no, no. Yeah, I, I, I think it's... I'd have to consider it more deeply in the context of the film because I think, you know, this is a movie where you've got lots of interesting... It's a movie about a dance school where you've got several scenes of dancing with no music. Or with very minimal yeah. music. I think the relationship between the music and the visuals in this movie is very unusual, actually. Mm. Um, and, you know, um, the music compared to the original is very slow-paced. Um, yeah. And that kind of matches the fact that the the whole movie is. Um, yeah. And I, I love the radio headiness of it. Um, if anything, it was a little bit too recognisable. At certain points, I was like, ah, yes, that's Tom York. <laughs> but, um, ah, well, so I think that concludes our discussion of, of Suspiria because we're running out of time. Um, we'd normally um, fire off some recommendations at the end of the episode, but, but we are really pushed for time. So I'm just going to say um, I would recommend horror fans get themselves to the BBC iPlayer. There's loads of really good films on there at the moment and they're hanging around for at least several weeks. So go and check them out. If there's anything else that either of you would like to throw in very quickly. Um, all of Garth Moringi's Dark Place is available on Channel 4's on-demand service. That's an excellent... Is yeah, it? Wow. It's all there. <laughs> right. I didn't know brilliant. that. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, have you got anything, Kirsty? Um, one of the recommendations I picked up for this week is um, uh, Jordan's, Jordan Peele's Us is on Sky Movies at the moment, oh. um, which I very oh. much enjoyed. <laughs> Yes, me too. Yeah, that's yeah. good fun, that. Oh, fantastic. Plenty of good viewing there, though, to time people over till next week. Um, okay, great. And next week's episode will be myself and Stella talking about the films we saw at Grimfest last year, um, a discussion which we recorded a couple of months back. So um, we'll get to discuss and dissect some interesting feature films there, some of which are now widely available, and we'll point those out in the episode. Um, but for now... That's the end of our show for this week. So thank you very much, Kirsty. Thank you very much, Stella. Thanks, Dan. No, thank you. Uh, I'm Dan, and this has been And Now the Podcast Starts. Until next time, folks. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Kirsty Warrow, T.D. Velasquez, and... Stella Gaynor. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. 
or visit our Facebook pages at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash AndNowPodcast. And now the podcast stops.